Hello, I'm back. It's Graham Norton here. Thank you very much for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Gary Wilmot, MBE, is back on the stage as he takes on his new role as the Wizard of Oz in hit West End musical Wicked. Georgia Pritchett brings us her adventures in anxiety with her book My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Conrad Hill fills us in on the ITV adaptation of my debut novel Holding. And show chef Martha kicked us off with the Queen of All Puddings. No, seriously. And you loved it last week, so let's do it again. Guess the guest is back. We'll get into all of that in a second, but first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide Dilemmas. Graham, I know we're not meant to, me, meant to mention this, but I am at war with moths. Oh, no. Look at my jumper. I am now showing Dame Lily Norton my jumper sleeves, which I've just noticed are riddled with moth holes. I thought it was fashion. I no. thought... <laughs> Well, I will obviously be saying it's fashion. I notice you've got Anna Delvey in there very quickly today. I I wasn't even aware of it. I started doing Anna Delvey yesterday and I could tell quite quickly the people I was talking to didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) And they just thought, you're a lunatic. I feel Anna Delvey is now your kind of... Because you've been doing Drag Race on BBC Three, um, now you're sort of forming in your head your own drag queen and it's going to be based on Anna Delvey, yes? If I was doing Snatch Game, I would do Anna Delvey in a heartbeat. (laughs) Yeah. People would pay good money to see you. Why don't you do the Anna Delvey show? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I've got my business, <laughs> my foundation. The Graham Norton Anna Delvey Foundation. foundation. Um, today on my train journey, this was lovely. Oh, lo- no, what happened today? No, no, this was lovely. There were, uh, you know, you kind of sit on a quiet carriage and you think, ah, bliss. Tunbridge Wells. Lots of children got on in kind of, you know, high-vis jackets and little green outfits. And I was thinking, what is this madness? Thinking I'm going to move carriage. Yeah. And then, the leader of these little children, not so little, about 10, came up and was you know, giving them instruction. And I found out, I nearly blew this off, Graham, and went with them because <laughs> they are basically, this is a brilliant game, they're doing live Monopoly in London town, right? There's groups of them. And so they all have to go to like Mayfair and there's an allotted place at Mayfair. And if you're the first group to get there, then you own it. You own the whole of Mayfair and people have to start paying you rent. And then you can start buying hotels. And then you have to go to one of the stations. You know, there's four, there's right. King's Cross and Pat. So they were basically, they had maps. They were given maps. So I are off. they like a group of young squatters? They're cubs. <laughs> they are cubs. <laughs> they're not actually moving in. I think their so parents... Tiffany's on Bond Street has been taken over. <laughs> but I did love, I don't know what the cub leader was called. You know, Mrs. Vixen or something Michaela? like... Michaela? Michaela? No, in terms of cubland. What is... Cubs have vixens. Arkela. Something something Kayla. Kayla, Arkela. You're hearing this in your ear, are you? Arkela, yeah. But she was coming up saying, do not eat all your chocolate. You will be hungry by three (laughs) o'clock this afternoon. Have you all had breakfast? Yes, we have. Why are you eating chocolate at nine o'clock in the morning? That sort of thing going on. Well, now, she could have been talking to you. Uh, yes, she could. I, I quickly put my chocolate away lest she saw Graham. Guess what I had for breakfast? What? Belgian dark dip chocolate shortbread, courtesy of Waitress. Oh, they sound delicious. I noticed you didn't offer me one. There's some here. I didn't eat them all, oh. which was really good of me. Yeah. Because it's, it's not, you know, it's I could. very <laughs> unlike you, isn't it? But I love the little cubs and I wish them all well. And that's a really good game. I know. I did say to the cub leader, 
Michaela or whatever you're calling her. Um, Arkayla. Arkayla. Can we do this for adults? I said, I really want to come with them. And then, of course, the kids were told, don't be on your phone, which they all were, obviously, playing games, because you'll need your phones later to find out where the other cubs are on the Monopoly board and you will run out of charge. There was lots of very, don't do this, don't do that. Don't talk to that lady yeah. over there. And I said... Well, <laughs> she I will s- follow us. <laughs> do not encourage her. I did say... Do not give her chocolate. Why are they all wearing green, you know, uh, luminous jackets? And she said, so I can spot them. I said, I think it would be better if you gave them more comedy wigs. <laughs> like those ginger wigs that people wear from Scotland. And all the kids went, no, we don't want to wear comedy wigs. Uh, Spoil sports. We like our high-vis jackets. <laughs> I know. We can direct traffic whenever we want. We can dig up Bond Street when we get there. <laughs> it's a really good idea, though. <sighs> yeah. You know, I reckon there's a TV agent out there somewhere who should be thinking, I'm going to make this into a TV show. You know, like Celebrity Live Hunted action or Monopoly. That's a really good idea. Come on, Graham. Let's All patent right. it quickly. Quickly, quickly. Uh, get some letters together now. You've got oh. two, I'm guessing. You've changed your tune. Well, I have, yeah. It's uh, friendly well. a minute ago. <laughs> now look at you. Virgin Radio. What is that sort of ee thing you just did? What does that indicate? Uh, I don't know what I did. Oh, you just did that. Did I make a noise? Yeah, oh my goodness. Maybe I wasn't it's even involuntary. Aware of it. it could have been my stomach. <laughs> no, it was you out of your mouth. Oh, I don't know. I, I won't point it out because it may just be something that you start doing now. I'll go to the app and listen back. <laughs> I'll do. Very good way of publicising the app. Yeah. Or Graham. maybe I'll check out the podcast, oh, which drops here we go so now. early on a Monday morning. It's a marketing opportunity yeah. in one. I'm going to read you a letter to stop you. OK. Oh, this is a bit contentious. Dear Graham and Maria, <clears throat> a friend of mine is unvaccinated and is resolutely against getting any vaccinations. They have a right to their own opinion, of course, but they have now paid a lot of money for a fake COVID pass and have started using it to travel. I'm very much against this and want to stop it. But should I report my friend for doing this? This is from Shannon in Bristol. Well, Shannon in Bristol, the short answer is no, do not report your friend because basically also nothing will happen. I mean, listen, Shannon in Bristol, we are lucky enough to live in a democracy. Goodness knows more than any time ever, we need to appreciate that. Your friend has a choice and that is good. He has decided to not have the vaccine and That's his choice. But he should be adhering to the rules, which are no COVID pass, no travel. So, you know, the very fact that he has paid a lot of money needlessly, he could have just had the vaccine, to uh, get a fake COVID pass, that is his prerogative. I would say you may just want to rethink this friendship, Shannon in Bristol, because he doesn't sound like a very (laughs) honest or nice person. That's all I want to say. I mean, I don't want to come down on one side or the other, but look, it's a sort of civic duty in a way that we've tried to protect everybody else. If you're going to pay for a fake COVID pass, then just, you know, don't be his friend. That's all I have to say. I'm a bit cross with him. Yes, weird. It's It's the fake COVID pass that's annoying. You know, because the vaccination thing, we get it. You know, some people don't want to be vaccinated. But but then choices, they come with consequences. Yeah, yeah. And one of the consequences of making that choice is you can't travel. And 
to then break the rules to do that, you kind of think, no, no buster. You can't be all principled and, you know, I'm going to kind of, you know... Stand up for my right to I'm freedom. Going to, yeah, this is the hill I, I die on. When, in fact, you're not willing to take the consequences of your choice. That's the bit that annoys me about this person. Um, yes, uh, I run for the hills. They're, I mean, they're not a nice person. No. No. I just think it kind of gives the measure of somebody. And as we've said before many times, it seems to be a, a catchphrase, you know, if somebody tells you who they are, believe them the first time. And this has kind of told you who he is. He's not prepared to abide by the rules. He's putting other people at risk, potentially. And now he's paying over the odds for something to, to allow him to break the rules. And that's not good. Yeah. I mean, and also, I, weirdly, we were talking about this um, during the record. I was listening to a podcast called uh, Death by Conspiracy. And it's a really fascinating story. On BBC Sounds. Yeah. About... And it's a it's a story about a, a, a man who went down this rabbit hole of anti-vax and, you know, COVID denying. And, I mean, it's, and it's awful because he did get COVID and he died. And... And she goes to Salisbury and she kind of interviews all these people. But actually, the wider thing she talks about is why do people go down these rabbit holes of misinformation and things? And it's and it's it's really interesting because it's not a kind of as you know, it wasn't a judgy thing. It wasn't going to going, oh, these people are idiots or these people are or what sort of. Per-. She was just going, actually, it's just occasionally you get hit by a bit of information at the right time. And, and it triggers. And it triggers something and you're in there and you follow it down. And that was th- this man in, in Salisbury. Um, except what's so awful is, you know, they have his search history. And, um, and of course, when he got COVID, then he did believe in COVID. And, but, but, other people a little bit these... too late as yeah. it turned out i mean um, it's a very sad story it's very I hear people sad. going oh well he you know he got what he deserved no it's a sad story because misinformation can affect all of us and we have to beware of you know being gaslit <laughs> you know we are seeing this happening in our world as we speak yeah. um we just have to be aware of this all the time and try and find as much information from the experts yeah. and, and uh, yes but i but to go back to this oh, yes. i would say that Whatever about this friend, whatever about this friend, however they got to the stage where they don't want to have a vaccination, you that's your decision. This breaking the rules thing, this paying all this money for a fake COVID pass, that makes me really loathe them. So uh, you, this is not a nice person, Shannon. Yeah, Shannon. Get out of town. Unfriend. Oh, I can't, I have no COVID pass. Unfriend immediately. <laughs> Get out of town or what did you say? I said I can't, I have no COVID pass. <laughs> Go to another village. Uh, another village where Annabelle lives. Oh, no. I can't talk about it. The wire transfer. My bonk. I've had a problem with my, my bonk. bonk. She never says my bonk. I've had a problem with my bonk. No. Uh, if you can find us for Shannon in Bristol, I dread this. My favourite responders today will get... Mm, a Waitress and Partners number one, Cedarburg Shannon Blanc. It's from South Africa. And while you're enjoying your wine, you are helping people because uh, this white wine is made with a pioneering and visionary team at Cedarburg, a Waitress Foundation farm in the Western Cape, South Africa, where they help fund projects to improve the lives of the workers. So, you know, the more you drink, the more you help, uh, which is, you know, that's good, you know. If you drink a case... Think how much help you've done. I mean, that's the sort of charity I can get, I can really get behind. Anyway, yeah, my favourite response will be getting a bottle of, of that. Uh, Dom and Marcia Cambridgeshire. Shannon should absolutely report the friend. It's criminal activity.
Cleo and Rochford said, if you do report your friend, it could come back uh, to you if you're the only person they've told. Ooh. We thought about that. Yes. It could be, yes. It, it, that, it could be uh, Wagatha Christie, couldn't it? <laughs> Just figure out where it all came from. Rethink your friendship goals if this upsets you, as it should for anyone with a conscience. Uh, Tony writes, I have a friend who refuses to get vaccinated. She's a person of principle who I greatly respect. And although I fundamentally disagree with her, she'd never do this. Bin the liar off. And I think that gets to the heart of it, doesn't it, Tony? Because if you're if you are this principled person, I'm not going to be vaccinated. Da, 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 suddenly you're an incredibly unprincipled person. You're telling lies and you're, you know, really, you know, break breaking the law. That's what you're doing. Uh, Sarah in with Dean, tell the friend you need the details of the illegal printing outfit, report them and then dump the friend. Ugh. Paul in Ulverston, I think it's right to unfriend the COVID rule cheating friend, but you need to tell them why as well. I mean, you can, but... Really? I think they'll just wang on a bit and they'll be, yeah, just delaying the annoyance. Claire's in Norfolk. What a distressing letter. What a selfish and fraudulent thing to do. Surely this friend has shown their true colours before, but now is definitely the time to let them go from your life. Uh, thank you for your responses. I am going to give the bottle of Chenin Blanc uh, to Tony. Tony in Mills, because uh, I think you... You kind of got to the heart of the thing there, that if you're going to be principled and, you know, holier than thou and not get this vaccination, then you can't suddenly flip it on its head and become a master criminal with your fake COVID pass. OK, you got a letter, lady? Yep. OK. Here we go. Let's hear it. Dear Graham and Maria, I have a childhood friend who I grew up with. We're in our late 20s. Our lives have taken a somewhat different path and now she's getting married. But she asked me to be her maid of honour. I was delighted. I scoured the internet and department shops for the right dress as I'm not used to being anything other than casual and wanted to make sure I was dressed right for the occasion. The dress I ended up buying isn't designer label but expensive. Oh, no, isn't an assignment label expensive, but it wasn't cheap either. A few weeks before the big day, the bride has now quite coldly told me that I'm no longer to be the maid of honour and that she's asked someone else. She told me I could wear the dress on another occasion, but I can't really, as it's very dressy. She won't reimburse me, and I'm feeling hurt beyond words. It's not the money, although that is a big part of it. It's the disrespectful way I've been treated. I know it's her big day, but it's left a very bitter taste in my mouth. I've not been asked to be maid of honour before, and I was very much looking forward to it. Now I feel like a fool. Am I right to be hurt and angry? I'm questioning the friendship and whether I want to continue or just accept that we'll grow apart. And that is from Jenny in High Wycombe. Jenny in High Wycombe, I am outraged on your behalf. Let's do the practical stuff first. Take the dress back. Swap it for the casual wear that you prefer. You do not want that dress. It will always be tainted for you. Secondly, do not attend the wedding. You were asked to be maid of honour and then you were cancelled from your maid of honour duties. She has treated you in the manner of a playground tiff and I think that is really unspeakably cruel of her and I would just say 
fr- frankly, Jenny, in High Wycombe, it's a bit like the last person. Do you want this person to be your friend? Do you want the bride to be your friend? You've grown apart. It was nice of her to ask you to be maid of honour. It was hateful of her to stop you being maid of honour and to cancel you in such a callous way. Again, like the first letter, unfriend her. You don't need people who are draining you. This is toxic, it's unpleasant, it's not nice. You need to just think, no, I'm worth more than this. I do not want her in my life. Sorry, I'm feeling very harsh this morning. But what's gone on here? You know, because is it the dress? I mean, did Jenny choose a dress that was so ugly that the bride thought, I can't have that in my wedding? So uh, I'm sorry for, for for that reason. I'm out. <laughs> no, I think uh, she's just got somebody better suddenly, you know. <laughs> suddenly, you know, like a celebrity has walked into her life. You know, Lulu happened to be opening a supermarket and she just said, you wouldn't be my maid of honour, would you, Lulu? And Lulu said, yes, I will. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, oh, I mean, yes, if that is the case, if it is just... Uh, if nothing's happened here, Jenny... You can't ask somebody to do something... That's what I mean. ...and then say, no, you can't do it. That is really cruel. Oh, that thing. Yeah, it is... It's. Do you know what it reminds me of? What? It reminds me of once... And it's the only time I've ever written a letter of complaint. It's about you. Yes, yes. it is. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, this is where I was on a plane... Yeah. ...and I didn't ask for an upgrade. I didn't I hadn't said boo to a goose. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Were you famous at this point? Not really, no. OK. And... That means yes. They came... They, well, no, I'd done a bit of telly. Anyway, they... They came to me and said, are you... Uh, I said, oh, well, follow me. And uh, I went, oh, really? And I said, should I get my bag? Oh, yes, bring your bag. And so I got my bag. They brought me up to... Uh, First up class. Virgin, up class thing. Oh, it's virgin. Yeah, it oh. is virgin. Mm. Different virgin than this one. Yeah. And, uh, and, Phew. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I sat myself down. And I'm all delighted. And I've just, you know... Champagne. I, I've got my glass of champagne. I'm looking at kind of all the goodies. and everything. This is so exciting. And uh, then just before takeoff, they came to me, oh, sorry, there's been a last minute passenger. You have to go back now. No! The worst. The worst. They gave and they took away. You were the quite walk, happy where you were. I was quite happy where I was. The walk of shame. Oh, Graham. And everyone back in economy looking at me like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> we stayed where we were and now we don't feel silly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have to move our bag at all. But now I need to know what happened to your letter of complaint. Did you get an apology and an upgrade next time? Richard Branson brought me a rocket. Uh, <laughs> well, that is some apology, isn't and a it? a hot air balloon. <laughs> it was very good of it. Both of which have been very successful, I hear. Oh, no, really, really good. Anyway, it reminds me of this, that you can't, you know... Jenny probably didn't want to be this stupid woman's uh, maid of honour, but once you've been asked, you allowed yourself to get excited. And she bought the dress, and, you know, she was looking forward to the day. And so to take it away like this is just horrible. Really, really horrible. So uh, when she says, uh, can I accept we've grown apart, you haven't grown apart, you've been pushed apart. This friend gave you a great big shove off the edge of a cliff. Not even that. She was never your friend in the first place. No. This was a terrible thing to do to you, and it sounds... Sounds like it was a sort of manipulative, cruel thing to do. Just to ask some why bother asking you only to then snatch it back? Yeah. I, it can't be anything to do with the dress. It, can it be that she was going to look nicer than 
even the bride in the oh. in the dress. Had she inadvertently had she inadvertently bought a wedding dress? <laughs> is it white with a veil? <laughs> yes, I'm looking for something for a wedding. What about this? <laughs> is it white with a veil? And do you look really super hot in it, Jenny and I Wickham? Because that may be a clue. That would be a good idea. Why don't you buy a wedding dress now and then go to the wedding? No, don't go to the wedding. Just stop this immediately. Draw a line in the sand under this so-called friend. She is nasty. I'm being quite harsh Are today, really Graham, aren't are. I? Yeah, yeah. But you're right. And uh, <laughs> thank and, you. And also, her marriage will be very unhappy and unsuccessful. Oh no, we don't need to go that far, Graham. <laughs> she's not a nice person. Sure, not a nice person. Well, hopefully, she's marrying not a nice person, and they'll be very happy together. Excellent, lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, what we can only hope Jenny, I think Jenny will get some sympathy from uh, the Virgin Islands. I don't think our previous letter will get much sympathy. Oh, I don't or know certainly why. not her friend. I, I don't know where we're But we're Jenny, going. you know what? Just put it down to experience and move on and have a happier time than she will. The response is part two. My favourite responder will, of course, be getting a bottle of the Witches and Partners number one, Cedarburg Chenin Blanc, uh, which is helping to improve the lives of workers on the Western Cape, South Africa. Uh, right. OK. Uh, Dr Helen in Preston says, Jenny, I would wear your stunning dress to the wedding. Eat, drink and be merry on her tab. And then when you leave the wedding, leave the friendship at the door. Like Cinderella. Just leave a single shoe on the, the step. Uh, uh, Mary says, did Jenny not do something that the bride was expecting? Like, organise a hen do? I mean, I think, I, what's there something like that? It's a bit weird that the bride's obviously been waiting for something to happen and Jenny hasn't done it. And so, right, you, you're binned. <laughs> that person's doing it now. Uh, that's why she's asked someone else. More information is needed. I agree. I feel like there's a something missing here. Uh, Jill in Northumberland sounds like a selfish bridezilla. I agree. Return the dress and boycott the wedding. This is not how friends behave. Jan in Wales has found a new problem. Maybe the groom fancied the maid of honour. Drop them both. Not the kind of friends you need. And from Chorley Wood, I definitely think it's all about the dress. After, after being asked to be maid of honour, she immediately went out to buy a dress to suit her own style. Who even does that? She was clearly supposed to wear the stupid pink chiffon, whatever monstrosity the bride chews. I, I mean, you do kind of think it's it's odd that she was just left to her own devices. You would think the maid of honour would want to be, you know, part of the bridal party. I, I feel like, unwittingly, Jenny's messed up here. And she doesn't know. But also, bride, tell her. Explain what she did wrong. Uh, I am going to give the wine to, uh, to to Marie actually about the the, the Hindu and and more information. I know it's not actual advice, but I think you are on you're on to something. So uh, I'm going to give you the witness partners. Number one, Siderberg Shannon Blanc. Thank you for all your responses today. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, it's my first guest of the day. We know him, we love him. Gary Wilmot is <laughs> <Hello>. here. <laughs> I know. I think it's Gary Wilmot. He's sitting very far away. A long way away. <laughs> I can't believe it. He claims he's Gary Wilmot. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, congratulations, joining the cast of Wicked. If people haven't seen Wicked, I think the thing they don't get is like the scale of it. It is, I mean, it's the, it must be the biggest musical in the West End. It probably is, actually. Um, I, I know if you sit out in the auditorium, you see where you're money's gone you might think tickets are expensive but when you see all that oh. you know it's not one man in a spotlight this is literally <laughs> hundreds of people that go, go to put this show on and it's fantastic such a spectacle and every night standing ovation people are thrilled and of course in our 
industry, we do a thing called peddling memories. And if you do your job really really well people go away and they remember that for the rest of their lives yeah you know and it's a wonderful feeling that to see people and i'm saying earlier what's great is like the the memories start from the moment you step out of victoria station yeah because the the glow of the apollo (laughs) it does doesn't it yeah it looks amazing i think it starts before that even you know people buy tickets and put them on the mantelpiece if people still have mantelpieces you know (laughs) and uh they're they're excited to to come and see it for the day they're going to celebrate a birthday or whatever it is or a christmas present and uh but yeah when you step out of victoria you know you're in you're in the land of oz the emerald city yeah yeah and i mean there's a stat here it's been seen this is just in london it's been seen in the Apollo by more than 10 million people. Wow, OK. Like, well, I can believe that. It? It, yeah. it feels to me like that many people have gone through it in cast changes over the years. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big cast. It really is a big cast. Yeah. Uh, now, how long have you been doing it a month? Yeah, I've been doing it about a month now. Yeah, something like that. And So uh, you feel like you're settled, you're in now? Yeah, I mean, it isn't the, the hardest role in the world, in all honesty. It's it's uh, There's a lot of weight with it. Of course there is. But as far as learning the words and knowing where to stand, um, it's it's not, not that difficult. But And everybody's always talking about you, which is great. You're kind of conspicuous by your absence. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then all of a sudden you, you, you come on and you make this entrance and it's lovely. And then you're on for five minutes or something and then you go again. <laughs> lovely. But you have to come on for the curtain call. I have to come on. <laughs> yes, you do. You do have to do that. Do you yeah. wear your own shoes for the curtain call? <laughs> <laughs> all underdressed. Yeah, my shell suit is underneath so I can dash for the station. Yeah. Um, and I suppose what we should do is is explain uh, what Wicked is if people have not seen it. So you play The Wizard of Oz. Yes. And it's sort of adjacent to that story. Yeah, it's like a prequel, really. It's how Glinda and uh, Elphaba, the Green Witch, the Wicked Witch, there was how they they met at college, and it's right, it goes right from Elphaba's birth uh, and uh, and right the way through to when. Um, when they part and and kind of we understand why well hopefully you understand why Elphaba turns out to be wicked and uh, I'm melting I'm melting <laughs> you know? uh, so it's a kind of a prequel it's a, it's a bit it's difficult I've not read the book I'm not really a great one for reading books before I do projects because you're influenced by things that aren't in the show yeah. so and, you know I like to do the script and that's it but it is it is an amazing spectacle um, the, the athleticism of the dancers is extraordinary I mean these guys playing the the, the men and women playing these monkeys, these flying monkeys, it's amazing. They're like Olymp- Olympic athletes. No, and they're all over the they're set. All over the they're place. way up there. And you think, <laughs> wow. wow. And, and tell me this, it's obviously creating a role is one job. That's a yeah. challenge. But doing what you're doing is a different challenge. When did you actually get onto the set? Mm. You know, how how does it work when a, when a show is running anyway? Well, I've done that, taken over a few times. The first show I ever did, me and my girl, I took over. Oh, of course, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, and I saw that about six months before. And uh, with no, I was doing variety on television and, and all these kind of um, copycats kind of shows and, and variety shows on TV. And I went to see it because we had a friend in it and, uh, and I came out of that building saying this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Life. Little did I know that six months later that I was auditioning for it, and um, uh, and I and I took over from a guy called David Schofield, and uh, I, and I absolutely love that. That really started me on musical theatre. But these days, when I take over, I sit and I watch the show, and I think, how can I do that? Because they're all good. Everybody in it is good. And if I'm taking over from somebody, they're really good. But I think, how can I make that mine? I don't just want to do what they're doing up there. Uh, also, it's a 
big advantage I find seeing the whole set and knowing where you where you are, the logistics of it all, if you like. And uh, and I try and wring it dry and get the, and get the, <laughs> the best out of it uh, that I possibly can in a short space of time. And it's interesting that me and my girl was your intro into yeah. you know because doing the Lambeth Walk yeah. and you are an actual Lambeth boy. Yeah, my school was in the Lambeth Walk, um, and uh, in fact, <laughs> in fact, I played. No, that's wrong. I held a trumpet in the school band, I think because it got me out of physics or something. And uh, and then when they opened up, this is absolutely true, I'm going to tell you, Graham, when they opened up the public toilets in the Lambeth Walk, our school band marched up and down outside playing Handel's Water Music. And that is, my hand on my heart, that's what we did. I mean, that's going to put you off. <laughs> I'm trying to go. I'm trying to have a tinkle in here, do you mind? But the mayor was down, he cut it, and we, we had pearly kings and queens and all down there just out the, the public toilet. Oh, people must have been bursting on the lamp of the walk. <laughs> Hurry up, open it! <laughs> 200 years they've been waiting with crossed legs. <laughs> and tell me this, you know, obviously New Faces was your big, yeah. you know, in, intro into the world. Who were you before New Faces? Were you doing the clubs and stuff before that? I did a bit. I mean, it was very quickly onto New Faces, I have to say. Um, but I was um, a warehouseman for the GLC for about four years. I was scaffolding to pass forklift driver. I did all sorts of things. And my friends pushed me into the business. They thought I was funny because I was always clowning around. And um, one of them actually got a card for a, an agent and said, I've told him that you will call him. And so I, I went, oh, okay, and I called him. And he said to me, his name was Danny Ray, and he said, um, what, what's your act? And I said, I haven't got an act. And he put me in contact with a man called Alan Clive, who at that time was uh, doing, he was on um, Who Do You Do? He was, he was an impressionist. But he was giving tuition to new people. And uh, he put me together with another one of his students called Judy King, and we did a double act. And within 18 months, um, a scout came to see us in a pub in North London and said, we want your new faces. And we went on there and, um, and we won it with a record number of points at that time. Uh, and people have to remember out there that in those days there were only a few stations and, and New Faces got 18 million viewers. Um, so if you did well on that, uh, you, the next day you were known. Oh, but don't say, once say you were a star, but you were certainly known and people wanted to, to see you. But that night, I think we, we won. It went out on a Sunday night, and I think on the Monday, uh, Judy and I were at uh, the Rotherham Workingmen's Club. <laughs> so it was twenty million viewers one night, and then a couple of hundred the next. What are the go- what are the good nights when you when when you're in the theatre? There must be like nights when you kind of think, oh, it'll be all right. And then is it Friday night or is it Saturday night? Which is the best one? It's every night with with Wicked. I mean, good on- answer, sir. Good yeah. on- <laughs> no, it is. No, tr- truthfully, it is. Um, uh, they are on their feet every every show. It's extraordinary. Uh, they don't differ. I know with plays, maybe that's slightly different. Yeah. You know, you'll have a, a Wednesday matinee when lots of older people come in and it's been raining and steam is rising off the audience because <laughs> glasses are steaming up. It's, it's like looking at a greenhouse with a blue rinse. And tell me this, what's it like... For you, do you have to make an adjustment going from... Were you in the, the London... What was it what was called? Pantoland this year? Oh, Pantoland, yes, yeah. yeah. So what's it like for you as a, making the adjustment to going from something in Pantoland where really anything <laughs> can happen to the discipline of an actual yeah. musical where I've got to say what's written? Oh, I've Graham, a... you know this. Do You know the discipline is in pantomime as well. It absolutely is. I mean, working with someone like Julian Clary it, uh, at the Palladium, he, he is 
consummate. He's just so, so good. And apart from the chat he has with the audience at the front, everything, he's, he's brilliant. Everything is just rehearsed and it's, you know, made to look spontaneous. That's our job. Every time we walk on a stage, not just in pantomime, but we're trying to make it look like it's the first time we're doing it. And didn't you have the great Donny Osmond this year? Yeah, we did. And he, he is great. Oh, he I was, love Donny He was remarkable. Yeah. He's such a nice guy, isn't he? Really nice. I mean, I'd worked with Jimmy. I took over from Jimmy in, uh, in Chicago, Jimmy Osmond. And uh, so I spent some time with him and he was lovely and then Donnie comes along and he's even lovelier it's, yeah. it's yeah amazing amazing bunch of people yeah Mr and Mrs Osmond did well <laughs> yes because those people can go either way can't they yeah you they know. can yeah. yeah I've been I've been in shows when it's not worked uh, I don't know if I can say live but yes you know Dear old Priscilla Presley wasn't as dynamic as one might think. That's all. She's lovely. She's terrific. But I don't think she kind of fitted on the, well, also, the pantomime had, had anyone explained to her what a panto was? Not really. They no. don't. They just go, they show them the zeros and they come over and do it. And, you know, bless them, they think they're doing West End Theatre and it's, you know, it's... <laughs> And there they are in Milton Keynes. Because <laughs> though, so what? What was Pantoland? Was it just a, a, a compilation of greatest hits? Yeah, and um, I said uh, to Michael, he said, "I wish I'd have used this in the publicity. If it was an album, you'd call it now. That's what I call Panto. <laughs> it was, it, it was, you know, all the best routines, brilliantly linked together by uh, Nigel Havers and uh, Julian Clary and Paul Zerdin and myself. We kind of put it all together, but mainly Julian. Uh, and then Donnie would come on and sing, you know, sing a few Puppy Love." Uh, with, with Paul Zerdin, of course, is a ventriloquist. He did a lovely routine with him where they called it Puppet Love, and they called it Puppet Love, which is which was lovely. And audiences, yeah. I've heard people say it was the best one yet. Oh, really? Uh, but we've got even more. In, I mean, we're doing Jack and the Beanstalk, which was announced a couple of days ago. We're doing that this year at the Palladium, which is all very exciting. Because you've become such a company now. <laughs> yes. How many years have you been doing that? I've been five. Uh, I didn't do the first one. Okay. Uh, and then they realised they needed me, and <laughs> yeah, and a, then a lot of the feedback was, but where's, <laughs> where's Gary, Gary Wilmot? <laughs> exactly. So I've been, I joined them the, the year after, and uh, it is, it's a nice. Uh, Cameron Mackintosh called it the modern crazy gang. Um, yeah. We are a bit, a bit bonkers. And also really nice, I imagine for you that you've got this thing in your year mm. that you can do other things because yeah. you know well that's happening yeah absolutely and it's uh, it's great fun it is hard work it, it, it's fun when you're actually on there but it's all the stuff you know we have to deal with our Christmas as well so there's all the kind of Christmas preparation and stuff and just getting one day off on Christmas day is a little bit of a chore but you know it's worth it see I'd use that as an excuse to do nothing <laughs> I would have got you a gift, but I'm working. I've been in Pento. Yeah, I can't, you know. Yeah, I'm so busy, busy, busy. And uh, how long are you going to stay in uh, the wonderful land of Oz? Yeah, uh, I'm there till October. Oh, my, wow. Yeah, so it's quite, quite a chunk. So this is a year for you. Yeah, really, yeah. Because you'll be going straight back into Pantoland. I'll have about five weeks off and um, and then into Pantoland. No, well, Panto, yes. Panto, yeah. Jack yeah. yeah, absolutely. Shut yeah. up, Grant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, if people want to see Gary Wilmot, and if you haven't seen Wicked, you really should, because yeah, it's... Absolutely. It's like an old-fashioned... It's like watching a Broadway musical or something. It is, yeah. It's just the scale of it is just off the charts. It's at the Apollo Victoria Theatre and you can find tickets and information at wickedthemusical, all one word, .co.uk. Gary Wilmot, thank you so much for coming in to see us and uh, enjoy your two shows. I will. It's a pleasure. Even from a distance, it's great to see you. (laughs) Waving. (laughs) Bye-bye. I think he's... Is he gone? Is he gone? I can't can't tell. (laughs) Over here. (laughs) Cheers, Gary. Soon to come, hit comedy writer Georgia Pritchard will be sharing from her book My Mess is a Bit of a Life and Conleth Hill will be chatting about starring in the adaptation of Holding which is coming to ITV.
And we'll get another winner in Guess the Guest. Yes, back for a second week. But before we get to that, show chef Martha is on hand to teach us about getting regal in the kitchen. And she brings us the, a queen of puddings, not just any old queen of puddings. Mm, indeed, a berries and balsamic queen of puddings. You heard her, everyone. You heard her. <laughs> It's a berries and balsamic queen of puddings. And I was saying, while the record was on, I think we used to get this in school. It was like a school pudding. Uh, We'd get queen of puddings. Nice. Yeah. Well, hopefully nice. I remember liking it. I remember liking it. So So what's the difference between this and a classic queen of puddings? So the difference between this and a classic queen of puddings is that it's got a little bit of balsamic vinegar... In the berry layer. So Queen of Puddings, if anyone's not seen it before, is a layered, it's like a layered dessert. So it's got that bit of wow factor. It's got a layer of custard set at the bottom. And then it's got a layer of berry jam. Mm. And then it's got some meringue on the top. Oh, There's a lot going on. (laughs) But it's a soft, well, my memory is it's a soft meringue. Yes, it's not a crisp meringue. Not so much like a lemon meringue pie kind of crispness. It's more of a nice soft cloud of squidgy meringue on the top. And then it's served warm. So it's like yeah. a comforting, kind of delicious little bowl of something. <laughs> yes, I think the school version, it was sort of chewy. There was a chewy layer on the <laughs> a chewy top. chewy layer on the top. <laughs> on the top and the bottom. <laughs> it's a really good recipe, though, for using um, leftovers and food waste. I think there's a big highlight on food waste at the moment. A lot of us are more conscious of it. And this is a great dessert for using leftover berries, leftover breadcrumbs. Left, and it uses all of the eggs that the yolk and the white get used in the dish, so you're not wasting anything. Very good. <laughs> and then you can mash up the shells and put them on your plants outside. Exactly. Okay. I just said that. People, I, people no do idea. that. Yeah, people do do it. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> there must be something good in it. No, because I remember uh, when we were talking about food waste last year, like the stats are just so shocking, the yeah. amount of stuff that gets thrown away. Sure. So uh, great to use every little bit. So uh, you were saying this has got a middle range difficult. Yes, I'd say so. It's not ridiculously complicated and there's lots of ways to redeem it if you think it's going wrong but it's not just fling it all together <laughs> we can save it <laughs> it's savable i promise <laughs> all right uh, well how do we start so we're going to start with the kind of custard layer on the bottom and the thing i love about this recipe is that instead of having to make a really difficult um, custard using kind of all of the cream and the eggs and trying to get that perfect set because we're adding breadcrumbs to the base of the Queen of Puddings, because I didn't realise that Queen of Puddings is actually based on bread and butter pudding. And it's supposedly called the Queen of Puddings because it's the queen of bread and butter puddings. Oh, so it's basically it's a pimped up bread it and is. butter pudding. It is. Oh, so right. instead of just kind of lobbing in your sheets of bread and a few raisins and custard over the top, we're making a more refined version. So you're going to blitz your bread into breadcrumbs or use fresh breadcrumbs. It can be stale. Um, and the recipe also says you could use croissants, basically anything that's pastry based. Will be will thicken that custard well enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we heat milk and some lemon zest and some sugar in a saucepan, and then add in our breadcrumbs and leave that to soak for about twenty minutes. That then goes into the oven in our baking dish for about twenty minutes until it's a little wobbly in the middle, but quite set. But you're not going to curdle it. You're not going to split it, and um, because it's just nice and set. The egg yolks are in that as well. Okay. Just an addition. Yeah. <laughs> egg yolks go in there. Don't forget them. Don't. They are quite important. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be standing around at the end going, "I've got these egg yolks." Yeah. Right? They said no waste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just three egg yolks left. <laughs> 
So yolks go into the custard, the whites go into a separate bowl, and we're going to whip them for our topping at the end. Um, And then whilst the custard is in the oven, we're going to make the jam. So you want to take any mixed berries. Now, this is perfect for any of those berries in your fridge. I think berries are the thing that seem to go off the quickest or lose their quality the fastest. You can use frozen berries. You just need 250 grams of any types of berries into a saucepan with some sugar, Bubble for five minutes until nice and jammy, and then add in one to two tablespoons of our balsamic vinegar. Well, that's quite a lot of balsamic yeah. vinegar. Yeah. So I've gone with one tablespoon because I use some raspberries as my in my fruit, which are quite tangy. But the balsamic does a really lovely thing because otherwise, this kind of dessert with all of the sugar becomes very sickly and sweet, like eating lots of jam sandwiches in a row. <laughs> but a little bit of uh, balsamic just makes it a little bit deeper in flavour, just adds a little bit more of a grown-up taste. Yeah, it gave it like a bit of depth, I'd say. Mm. So, uh, so, and that's so. When do you so? When do you put it together? If you know what I mean. So the 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 custard, bready bit, that's in the oven. Yes. It comes out of the oven. Do you then? Put the jam on top? It yeah, comes out of the oven, jam goes on top, and then you whip your egg whites, add your sugar to make a meringue, and then you can pipe that on the top to make little peaks to make it look a bit like a crown, which I thought would be appropriate. Yeah. Can I just say, the, the, the Waitrose picture, the Waitrose picture doesn't look as good as yours. Oh, why, why thank you. Uh, you know, whoever made this, presumably it was uh, Mary Gwynn. Uh, let's name her. Uh, <laughs> no, she, looks... just, she just smeared her meringue. You can, I mean, if you're in a rush, you can smear your meringue. I mean, Mary's so busy. She is busy, Mum. <laughs> she, can't, she can't be piping meringue, but you did. If you've got time like me and you're trying to impress, you can pipe it on the top, do little swirls, make little peaks. It's your oyster. And then, so then we do that, and then you presumably goes back into the oven. Yeah, just for 15 to 20 minutes, just to get a little bit of colour on the top, cook that meringue through, and then you want to serve it warm with some double cream or... You know what? Even more custard, I think, wouldn't go amiss. Oh. And, but do you, is it is meringue in the oven something you've got to watch like a hawk? Or does it kind of go from brown to black like that? Shouldn't be too bad because we're only on 180 degrees. So Lovely. I wouldn't leave it in there for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> a very different kind of dessert would be created. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Queen of puddings. Yeah. <laughs> you sure? You sure about that? Uh, well, it's delicious. And as you say, that balsamic does give it a kind of a, a depth. Mature. It makes it seem like more grown up. Yes. Less nursery. <laughs> Less nursery, more adult. But I, I think if you brought that in, you would get a round of applause at a dinner party if you walked in with that. For sure. And it's nice to pay a bit of homage to our uh, puddings of the past. This is this kind of 17th century. Is it? Dessert. I think now you're looking so surprised and worried that I've got that wrong. Very old, basically. Okay, it's been wow. made for hundreds of years, so you know that meringue is cooked. <laughs> yes, really hard. <laughs> quite chewy. Well, certainly in the seventies we were eating it. In the seventies we were definitely yeah. eating it because I remember. Uh, if you'd like to know how to make the berries and balsamic queen of puddings, well, we can tell you. The full recipe is available on Instagram at Virgin Radio UK. Stab away there, and it'll also be on the twitter ladies and gentlemen yes uh, we are doing a link is it a link on the tweet or yeah there'll be a link in the twitter if you follow uh, at virgin radio uk on that uh, you're back in tomorrow uh sweet or savory tomorrow i am something savory another good tip for using up any leftovers you might have excellent graham norton on virgin radio good morning <laughs> how are you today i'm very well thank you how are you I'm grand, thank you. All the better for hearing about your crunchy-topped vegetable gratin. Because I've been describing it as vegetables all day, but, I mean, it, you might think, oh, lovely vegetarian dish. 
Beware, buyer beware. <laughs> yeah, number one ingredient is indeed cooked chicken, but <laughs> you can very easily keep this as vegetarian. But yeah, don't be don't be fooled by the title. I'd say that much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> you'll, you'll scroll down and go, oh. <laughs> um, so, the crunchy, so the crunchy element refers to the topping because it's almost like kind of a, um, a, a, a savoury crumble. It is indeed, yeah. So this is a really good way of using up leftovers, particularly on a Sunday. If you've made a Sunday roast for your fam and then you've got all of these leftovers, vegetables, meat, fish, if that's what you've done, or even like a nut roast, all of that can be turned into this dish for your dinner or for your lunch the next day. Um, so yeah, the topping is lovely and crispy. The underneath is nice and creamy and saucy and it shouldn't taste exactly like your roast dinner because sometimes you want something a bit different, don't you, the next day. Yeah, no, this is, it's got a kind of a mild curry taste is that what it is indeed yep yeah. it's got some uh, some medium curry powder in there you could use hot if you prefer to crank up the spice but the best thing about this recipe it's another mary Gwynn recipe focusing on not wasting food is that it's so adaptable if you like it's more spicy if you like it with different vegetables you use what you've already cooked so it will be definitely something that's up your street because it's cooking the vegetables that you already know that you like <laughs> And also, I mean, Mary Gwynn, nothing goes to waste in her house. But uh, not only are you using leftovers, but then there's not much washing up because it's a one-dish thing. Oh, the dream. Everyone loves a one-dish thing. <laughs> Especially on a yeah. Sunday evening. The last thing you want to be doing is slaving over your washing up. So yeah, all in one pan, into the oven. Really comforting. Nice, nice rainy day food, this one. So uh, sleeves up. I'm guessing, because this is leftovers, <laughs> it's not very hard to make. Exactly. So if you've got your leftovers ready, you can also make this from scratch. If you haven't got leftovers from a roast, you can cook up your vegetables, cook up some chicken, and then you can start from where I'll start off with the recipe. <laughs> okay, okay. So we've got we've got cooked vegetables. We've got and and they could be anything like a bit of broccoli. Can you chuck potatoes in anything? Yeah, you can literally chuck anything in. So I've got a mixture of broccoli and cauliflower. I've got some roasted butternut squash. You want kind of a nice variations on texture and flavour. So pick a few vegetables. Some which have more of a sweet undertone. Some which are a little bit more bitter, like uh, broccoli, because it will create a really nice kind of combination as you eat it. Okay, so uh, what, so you've got the, the, that selection of vegetables. You've got some cooked meat, a big pile of that somewhere. Uh, what do you do first? So first of all, we're just going to stick the oven on so it's nice and hot when we get to it and then arrange all of those vegetables and the chicken in a big oven-proof dish. And then we're going to make this lovely creamy sauce. And I think this is what brings the dish to life a little bit because things can dry out when they're in the fridge for a while, if they're leftovers. So you need something that's going to really... Breathe a bit of life into them. So we're going to make a really nice um, creamy sauce using some stock. The recipe actually really helpfully says that you can use a mixture of milk and stock and it doesn't need to be like a certain ratio. It just needs to be 500 millilitres of whatever you've got left over. So make up 500 millilitres of your liquid. We're going to make a roux with some flour and butter, add in our curry powder and it will start to smell really aromatic. And then we add our milk and chicken stock, a little bit of cheese and this gets poured all over our broccoli and all of our vegetables. Then we're going to put the crunchy topping on the top. Now, this is what I think, yeah, really makes the dish a bit more exciting. So we're taking flaked almonds and you can use any nuts that you've got, but almonds work really nicely because they'll toast at just the right rate <laughs> as your dish is cooking. So they get sprinkled over the top along with some breadcrumbs, a little bit more cheese, and then the whole thing just goes into the oven for 20 to 25 minutes until it's bubbling, golden, and you don't even need to make any sides. You've got your whole meal in one and you can just serve it straight away. And it is like a hug. I mean, it's a really comforting dish, isn't it? It's lovely. Um, and also, I must say, I think 
going. I think it's wise not to go for the super hot chili curry pe- thing because somehow the flavors are more interesting. If it's just heat, it, mm. you know, it, yeah, I, I feel it kind of deadens it a bit or something. Absolutely. I think the medium curry powder works really nicely. And also it's a bit of a good cheat because curry powder has got all sorts of different spices already making up that mixture. So you haven't got to be too careful with measuring your cumin and your turmeric and all those separate bits. You can just chuck it in nice and easy. Don't need to think about it. Um, and you'll be rewarded with a delicious dinner. Bob is indeed your uncle. Uh, that recipe can be found in lots of places. You can find it in the Waitrose Weekend newspaper. Uh, you can see it and find the recipe on our Instagram account at Virgin Radio UK. And now yesterday, I know we put it on Twitter, so I'm guessing today we're also <laughs> putting it on Twitter. If you follow us on Twitter, you'll find the recipe for the crunchy topped vegetable gratin. It is delicious. Uh, have a lovely week, Martha. Enjoy yourself. And I'll talk to you next weekend. And uh, more importantly, eat your grub. Right, take <laughs> See care. You then. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, it is time to meet my first guest of the day. She's worked on so many shows uh, The Shrink Next Door, Succession, Veep, and she's got this fabulous memoir now called My Mess is a Bit of a Life. It's out in paperback Adventures in Anxiety. Her name is Georgia Pritchard, and she joins us. Hello, Georgia. Hello, how lovely to be here. <laughs> Oh, yay, you. Um, so, Georgia, this book, I was, we were talking about it earlier, and, you know, it's so funny and it's lovely and it's moving. And in the book, it suggests that it, it came out of therapy. Is that really how the book came about? Yes, it is. Yes. And did your therapist just continue to tell you, stop being funny? <laughs> stop making jokes? I just couldn't. You know, it's funny when you're a writer and you're all about the words and then something happens and you can't find the words. Um, so I just, I couldn't express uh, what was going on. So she said, write it down. And I thought, yeah, I'm definitely not going to do that. Um, but then I I started and uh, and it ended up as this memoir. And it, it begins with, it, it's told in chronological order. Your childhood, do you really remember your childhood like that? Or are they kind of family stories so that you, it's a kind of a shared memory? No, I, that's all from me. I think my family probably disagree with me. That I mean, they, they may write their own versions. There'll be a whole literary feud. Uh, you do sound like an adorable child. Uh, <laughs> tell us about your relationship with uh, Monsters Under the Bed. Well, yes, I, w- I was a, a worrier from a very young age. And um, when I found out that, that there might be monsters under the bed, my main worry was, were they comfy? And... <laughs> Uh, so I used to sometimes sleep under the bed to give them a, a turn on top because I was worried they would lose out on sleep. And uh, the tooth fairy was very anxious making for you as well. Yes, I mean, goodness me, when my mother told... I lost my first tooth and she told me about the tooth fairy and I was just spiralled into complete panic because the thought of some weird old fairy breaking in and taking body parts in exchange for money seemed like the most appalling thing I'd ever heard. So that that was very concerning to me. But then it came full circle because your son then had a terrible tooth fairy experience. (laughs) He did, which was all my fault. I have this um, very attractive quality of uh, having nosebleeds at moments of extreme emotion, whether it's joy or or sadness. And... um, Something had happened uh, on the on the day that my son lost his first tooth, and so when I went in, to, and I was just sort of mid putting the fifty pence under his pillow, when I had a 
catastrophic nosebleed all over his duvet and pillow and uh, had to, you know, it was hard enough sneaking a 50p under without waking him up. I had to change his entire bedclothes without waking him up. Very ninja moves. I did somehow manage it. So he didn't wake up in a crime scene. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. And the thing about your anxiety, I think, reading the book, is you read the book and because, you know, your life became very complicated, you know, you had fertility issues and you had these children. But so reading, I'm thinking, well, of course you're, of course you're anxious. You know, because anxiety, I think people kind of think, oh, you're just an anxious person. But you had things to be anxious about. Yes, I suppose. I mean, I was anxious. My earliest memories are being anxious. And I just thought, oh, everyone's must be like this. And then as I grew older, I realised, oh, I think I don't think my friends are measuring their legs every day to see if they've got Robertson's giant limb. I think I think that might be just me. And um, so I began to realise I was different, which, of course, is the last thing you want as a teenager. And, and uh, that was another thing to worry about. But then, as you say, I mean, you can't get through life without various things happening. And, and I think sometimes you think worrying is a kind of insurance policy against certain things happening, but it turns out it doesn't work like that. And, of course, it, it's classic kind of show business, that idea of being so anxious, being, you know, totally eaten away by self-doubt, and yet confident enough to walk into, you know, a room full of male writers. I mean, do you remember when you... Weekending, the Radio 4 show, that was yeah. kind of... They, they had a kind of open door policy and that's how yes. you got going. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think the majority of people there would, were homeless people trying to keep warm and get a free biscuit. But um, there, there were a few of us who uh, had ambitions of writing comedy. And, yeah, I, I don't think that's confidence. I think I just didn't have a, another skill and I was desperate to be a writer. And I think it's more relentlessness than confidence and persistence because I just love writing so much and so I do it even you know in spite of what people think or or in defiance of uh, what critics may say and you talk in the book about you know it being a very male world which you know it really is is it still like that or has it got any better I think it is getting better I think um there are definitely more stand-ups who are women and more writer-performers. I think, um, I hope that's meaning things are changing, but it was very strange to be the only woman in a room for 25 years. Um, but I've, I've now have been in rooms with whole other women, so so that's great. Well, that, I mean, that, that is good. Because I, I also think, you know, that thing that if you're the only woman in a room, in a way you have to kind of a men's sensibility in a way to get your jokes away which must be really hard yes i think certainly you know you the jokes that get tend to get accepted tend to be ones that that they would come up with themselves so it, so i think the more you know diversity we have in rooms is better you just get a much more interesting mix of humor and frames of reference and everything and are you based here or in america now i'm in london yes in london so do you do most things remotely or do you uh, up sticks and go away when things are in production? Yes, a, a bit of both. It's fantastic how you can w work from home. But I, yeah, I have, I've been to um, work there, taking my whole family there and that's been really exciting. 
And and why, why why tell me? But I'm going to ask. Why don't you just move there? <laughs> that's where the work is. Well, I I love this country, and you know my parents are here, and uh, my children are at school and things. So um, I, yeah, it's, we've managed to work it so that we we all go in holidays and things. So yeah, it's 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 worked fine. And Georgia, you, you, you've met and indeed worked with Joe Biden. <laughs> Yes, that was extraordinary. Yes, uh, and Michelle Obama. I that came about because I was working on Veep, which was about a fictional vice president, and so we went and and filmed a sketch with her, Julie Louis Dreyfus, and the real vice president at the time, Joe Biden. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. And I mean, are you surprised to find that he's president now? <laughs> I'm relieved. <laughs> I think no, he's he's a you know he's a great person, and uh, I'm I'm delighted, and I, I you know I can't believe I met him, and I can't believe I met Michelle Obama. That was a fantastic experience. And is it does it feel a bit like Veep is coming true now when you watch uh, Kamala Harris and stuff? Oh my goodness! I mean, you know we. We thought we were doing this extraordinary, sort of exaggerated, horrific version of events. And then when we were in the White House, everyone kept saying, it's so true to life. <laughs> we thought, oh, no. Um, and then, you know, Trump, it's not the worst thing he did, but he did put an end to Veep because our fictional president by then she was, you know, lied and was ruthless and monstrous and venal and corrupt uh, but she had a sense of shame and she was kind of punished when she did bad things and suddenly overnight that seemed very twee and old-fashioned so we we had to stop uh, so that was a great shame yes he did I mean that's uh, kind of Trump did kill satire didn't he he did <laughs> he yeah I mean satirize it, yeah. I always you know I love writing comedy and and but I'm always impressed by how life is a better comedy writer than I could ever be and um, <laughs> I you know that moment where Rudy Giuliani did a conference from Four Seasons landscaping I just wanted to hang up my pen I was just clapping fate um, because I would never in a million lifetimes have come up with something that perfect it was so good yeah or well, the hair dye dribbling yeah. in his face. <laughs> yes. I mean, just in, in, incredible. Yeah. So the shrink next door. That, am I right in thinking that that was your that's your most recent um, uh, work? Yes, I'm. That's out on Apple, and I'm now back in the Succession writers' room. We're writing season four. Oh, how exciting! Yeah. And how does because that seems like you know because I, I think we we understand the idea of. A, a room full of comedy writers. We get yes. that. Everyone's coming up with jokes. Da, da, da. In succession, how does it work as a group thing? Does somebody write a script and then you all come in and punch it up and, and make it better? Or do you literally all write that script? Well, um, it is, you know, nearly all of the writers are comedy, are British comedy writers. So we do all sit around and we work out what's going to happen in every single episode. And then one of us will sort of take that away and write it, but we'll all add lines and jokes to each other's script. So it's a very kind of collaborative process. And and you say you're all English uh, comedy writers, so presumably you all know each other. We know what, each other, yeah. So how? What's it like if you, if if now you are the newbie, or if a newbie walks into that room? 
is is it really terrible and awful? Or <laughs> no, it's, are you just? <laughs> it's lovely. We have we have now got new writers who are fantastic. We had to get some Americans in, and also, it, I mean, it's so interesting because I think there was some doubt felt in some quarters: could this sort of group of scruffy, shambolic British comedy writers pull off a, a glossy, high-end American <laughs> drama? And in some ways, no, we couldn't um, because. <laughs> We we had to get a rich consultant in um, to tell us what it was like to be rich because we'd made all these mistakes in our scripts. Um, so, you know, we were just so excited that someone was paying for our sandwich at lunch. We didn't really understand what it was like to be a billionaire. So this, I remember when I wrote the um, Thanksgiving episode in season one, the rich consultant said to me, you know, that, oh, my God, you've got them wearing coats. Rich people don't wear coats. They just go from their car to their jet to their building. Their shoes only ever go on carpet. And and then I'd <laughs> I'd written that for the lunch that maids in maids uniforms were serving. And, and, and this man was like, where on earth did you get that idea? And I said, I don't really know. I think either porn or racist Tom and Jerry episodes. I don't, I don't know what it's like. He said, no, no, you get very young, gorgeous men in chinos and polo shirts. That's, there's an agency for them. Um, so yeah, we had to, we had to uh, be taught what it was like to be rich. And so that's you working on uh, somebody else's show, but the mm. shrink next door—that's yours. Yeah. What was is that? Your, is that your first time being in charge? In charge? Yes. Yes. And did you did you like it? Did you kind of go? Oh yes, this is this is my future. <laughs> I never want to be told what to do again. I turned into a monster. Yes. No, it was <laughs> it was scary. I don't really exude authority, so I I was uh, not very confident about it. But actually, it it I think. Being a minority in a room really helped me because I think it made me realise if you if you just make sure everyone feels kind of appreciated and seen, uh, then then it makes for a very happy crew and uh, and it, and a happy team and it was a really exciting experience and I got to work with Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd and Catherine Hahn who are all just incredible actors and it was a, a fantastic experience. And tell me this, Georgia, you've written this book, My Mess of Bit of Life, Adventures in Anxiety. Has it helped? Are you better <laughs> at managing your anxiety now? I mean, I'm just trying to be positive. What I would say, I'm, 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 I'm really good at worrying. Do you have fewer nosebleeds? Do you have fewer nosebleeds? Not all I really, no. I just make sure I have enough <laughs> tissues on me. I mean, nosebleeds and fainting, I could go at any minute. This is living life on the edge. Um, <laughs> Live radio. <laughs> Yeah. I think this is bad. On on Wednesday night, you're in conversation with Sally Phillips at Waterstones oh, Kensington. My. Yes. I know, live. Um, is Do people need tickets for that or is it just a rock-up thing? They do need tickets. If they could get tickets and bring tissues and a crash mat in case I pass out. That and would smelling be, salts. <laughs> smelling salts, yes, please. That would be great. <laughs> yes. Uh, Georgia, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. My Mess is a Bit of a Life. Adventures in Anxiety is out in paperback now. Take care of yourself. Thank Take you so much. Thanks, Graham. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Okay, it's time to be my second guest of the day. Uh, You'll know him from Game of Thrones. He now stars as PJ Collins in ITV's adaptation of Holding, which starts very soon. He's Ballycastle's favourite son, Condeth Hill. Hello. 
Good morning, Graham. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Thank you very much. So, uh, full disclosure, this is weird because... Yes. Uh, <laughs> the first interview, interview ever, uh, yes. even uh, despite the fact that I did the job. <laughs> It um, it is very weird that uh, it's my book, but we'll it's my book, so we'll put that to one side. Let's just we'll park that and and forget about that. So PJ Collins, tell us about PJ. Who is he? Where do we find him at the start of holding? The PJ is the kind of man that you'd pass in the street and not give a second glance to, let alone a first. He's in his middle age. He's been in this little village in West Cork for about three years, ten months, and counting. He's an outsider. He's a blow-in. Um, and he, basically what he has to deal with is the minutia of domestic uh, disagreements, non-violent, obviously, um, about colours of houses and things like that, and a bit of speed tracking, and that's his basic existence. And suddenly, in his uh, past prime, he has a murder case to deal with, and that's the kind of beginning of our story. Um, But it's an amazing ensemble piece uh, with amazing actresses and actors in it. So and all based on this wonderful debut novel by a young Irish writer. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) shut up, shut up. (laughs) So you're you're in it, you hold it all together. But then what's great about it is this. It's just this kind of um, bevy of Irish actresses. Just there's so many great Irish actresses in this show. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was so lucky. We've got uh, Brenda Fricker, who I think will go far. Uh, this was Oscar, her first Oscar job. winner, Brenda Fricker, I and her dog. Oh, her dog doesn't make an appearance, but her dog was there a lot. Oh, Juno, gorgeous Juno. And then uh, the amazing Siobhan McSweeney, Helen Bean, Amy, Pauline McLean, that uh, again, it's her first job. I think she may go far too. <laughs> Charlene McKenna, uh, just uh, um, Elner uh, Tiernan. Amazing cast, all one fall away, just, just everybody, Anne Kent, everybody in it. And then we have lads as well. We have a few lads just to um, even it up a bit. The amazing uh, Clinton Liberty and Gary Shelford and Sky Yang and then Pat Kinnevin and Carl Quinn. Uh, Norma, who's not a man, but I've just put her in with the men for now. She and Are you, so it's are you reading this cast. or do you have a very good memory? A uh, bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> Two pints of milk and some, you no, know, <laughs> And And uh, directed by Kathy Burke. Now, presumably you had, had Kathy, because Kathy, I thought she must have done TV things, but she'd done some sketches. And stuff. This is her first big uh, drama. Had you worked with her on stage at all? No, never. Kathy and I had uh, been mutual, uh, mutually admiring of each other's work through the years. And I've met her a couple of times after seeing her productions or whatever, but... Uh, another uh, just genius touch and uh, she led us amazingly just uh, and then of course the scripts uh, adaptation of uh, the wonderful debut novel by the young Irish writer (laughs) by um, uh, Dominic Treadwell Collins and Karen Cogan and they were just uh, great scripts and it's the best part I've ever been given in my life quite honestly well, you are, listen, I, I know I'm biased, but you are brilliant in it. And I felt a bit bad because I was in West Cork when you were filming it. And of course, in my head, I was thinking, oh, and I can pop into set and I can be supportive and maybe I'll have a party for everyone. But of course, COVID meant that none of that happened. I only went to set once because of the testing. Yes. But you did, yes. it did seem, 
was because of COVID, did it make it kind of, did it force you to be a happier gang in a way because you were just stuck with each other? So you had to, you had to have a good time. Well, I'm not sure because I kind of feel like I've been self-isolating since the 80s anyway. So it wasn't that huge a difference uh, of lifestyle for me. And when I'm working, I would kind of tend to concentrate on the work anyway. But I just think that uh, combination of people and Kathy's leadership just made for a, a, a very happy camp. And presumably you've seen it now. I've seen kind of rough cuts of the, the four episodes, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously you are the star of it, but the other star is West Cork. I mean, it looks so beautiful. Yeah, no, we'd, uh, Martin Fear was our DOP, and uh, I think we had some second units as well doing all the uh, all uh, West Cork's close-ups. But, yeah, it's a lovely travelogue for that part of the world, and uh, it was nice to be there. We went there as kids. On, I don't know how, but my father drove the whole way from Ballycastle down to West Cork and Kerry. Uh, for most of, your, most of your fortnight just to get there. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a good, well, it's better, better now, but it's still about eight, nine hours now. So in those days, it was probably a day yeah, to get down there. But it's a beautiful part of the world, as you know. And the people... I do, and I'm so glad because they could have, because it's an awkward place to get to, as you say. So it's an awkward place to film. So I'm really glad they went the extra mile and, and filmed it in the places well, where it's supposed to be. I think Dominic's association with the place and the wonderful debut novelist uh, uh, association with the place helped as well. And I mentioned uh, Ballycastle in your introduction, Connor. So did you move back to Ballycastle or have you never left Ballycastle? Uh, I never left. I, you know, if I get a job on Broadway or in the West End or a, a big, uh, you know, even West Cork, I'll go and stay there for the time I'm doing the job. But no, I've always lived here. And like is that because, in a way, because you, you because you always have to travel to the job, it doesn't really matter where you live or how did you end up there? Uh, yes, basically that's it. I just kind of, I, I spent a while in uh, London just, no, I didn't actually. I came straight home, got a job in a theatre in Belfast when I graduated from drama school. Yes, I did train. And uh, <laughs> since then, I just, just go with the workers. But a big, huge hunk of 10 years, more or less, was here for Game of Thrones. So that made it much easier. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Broadway there. Stones in his pockets, was that kind of, was that sort of life-changing for you when you got a part in that? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, it, we had done one production in 96 that kind of toured around Ireland and I'd been working away in little tiny things in television, you know, Casualty, The Bill, that kind of thing. Yeah, and um, Yeah, yeah, and thank God for them. But... Um, then I did this uh, show that travelled crazily quickly. That's not good English, but nor am I. And, um, <clears throat> you know, went from Belfast, a little theatre in Belfast, over to Broadway with Sean Campion. And Mary Jones played the Ian McElhinney directed. So that would have changed it for theatre. And then Game of Thrones would have changed it for TV and film, I suppose, you know, in terms of people going, oh, yes, I, I think I know who you're talking about now. And that must have been, I mean, what a... Sort of amazing thing to be in a hit on Broadway because I think what's odd about the West End, you know, you can be in a hit in the West End, but it's not like everyone knows you. Where in New York, if you're in a hit, people know you. You become a star. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true for us. I think lots of. <laughs> I think um, <laughs> it was eight shows a week. Um, so when when I do theatre like that, I really there's no time to party or socialize or anything else. It's very boring, very monk-like existence. So. 
Um, but no, the, the welcome in Broadway is amazing. And, the, you know, the amazing people we met and worked with and played on softball teams with and things like that were, were just crazy. Because did you get that thing of like just big stars coming back afterwards? Yeah, but that was kind of funnily enough more in London when we when we uh, did it first in London. We were the new ambassadors, which was across from the Ivy. And we had a very social company manager who would bring amazing uh, people back after the show. And we just met a crazy amount of lovely people who were very positive. But that kind of started in London. Yeah. No, because in fact, I just remembered I went back to see you um in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when you were playing with uh, Melda Staunton. And I went yes. backstage and Amelda had just read Holding. So did you give it to Amelda or did Melda give the book to you? No, I read it when it came out in, in uh, 2016. But when was uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Anyway, I think it was yeah. slightly after that. Um, uh, but I, because you had two books out, I think, by the time you came to see us, that you had oh, your right. second one as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. You want to debut? I'm so novel. prolific, man. Yes, I know. And you've another one coming out. I hear soon. Can't wait. I do thanks for mentioning. Thanks for mentioning it, Condeth. Yeah. No problem. 29th of September. <laughs> oh, I'll mark it in my diary. And tell me, the, so at the end of holding the story is complete, but is the idea that PJ Collins could, you know, live another day, ride another horse? I suppose that's a possibility, and I suppose it depends on ratings and the. Uh, the appetite of ITV and everything else, but it's certainly open for more cases. Um, yeah. I really hope people enjoy it because it is, it's such a, it's not like other things on telly at the moment, I would say. It's its very kind of warm and funny and let's say it just looks gorgeous and you, your performance is beautiful in it. It's really gorgeous. Oh, on it. So congratulations. That's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. But it was, uh, like you said, I had this plethora of amazing um, actors and actresses to work with and Kathy in charge of everything. It was just a real labour of love and uh, I, I'm really proud of it. Like, uh, And uh, again, thank you for your input. <laughs> well, I'm <laughs> saying we could, we could sell it. We could we could sell it by just saying Brenda Fricker on a moped. There you go. Oh, <laughs> oh, she's she's just the best. I mean, you had her over for dinner and only her. It doesn't matter, I'm just saying. But um, we, we, were, we, were I, we were isolating, Connor. We were <laughs> isolating. No, I was all right. The girls were heartbroken. It doesn't matter. They got over. <laughs> you know, you, it doesn't well, matter. When you have an Oscar, I'll invite you over. <laughs> <laughs> we have a but very strict policy in the that's house. That's not going to happen. That's not. I only work with people with Oscars. I don't win them. Uh, no. Uh, well, listen. Congratulations, Conneth. Uh, Conneth Hill stars as PJ Collins in Holding. The first of four episodes starts at nine o'clock on Monday, the fourteenth of March, on ITV. Thank you so much for joining us, Conneth. I'll let you go back to the pleasures of Ballycastle. Thank you, Graham. Good luck. Yes. Ah, yeah, that's what we're playing. Guest the guest. Uh, we're basically, I play the voice of a guest who's been on my show over the last 20 odd years. And if you correctly identify them, you win a Graham Norton with Rachel's gift box containing the hot drinks cup, champagne, truffles, balsamic vinegar, all sorts of Waitrose goodies in there. It is worth winning. It's a serious box of goodies. Okay, this is the voice that people are trying to identify. So James Blunt was the first one to come in and he was he was great. And he started singing um, uh, I think it was Moon River. Moon River wider than a mile. As, as he's singing, I leaned into him like that. And he kissed me. <laughs> Ooh, Lord of mercy. Uh, okay. 
Okay, let's see if we're giving away that gift box. Uh, first caller on the line is Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi, Graham. Hi, where are you, Tony? I'm phoning from Rotherham. Oh, Rotherham, I'm, lovely. I'm phoning on behalf of my wife, whose birthday it is today. See, well, it's it, good to get in with some, you know, yes, you'll win a gift box, but, you know, the the you know, nice birthday wish for your wife. Uh, are you, have yeah. you got special plans or is this the thing you're doing to make up for the fact you forgot to plan anything? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, we're going out for a walk and then we're going to Pizza Express later on. Oh, lovely. You have an alibi. With, with our, grandchild, with our <laughs> two grandchildren as well and daughter. <laughs> very, very nice. Uh, OK, so that's your Saturday planned. Will it contain the addition of uh, a, wait, a Waitrose gift box? Uh, who do you think that voice belongs to? We think it's the unmistakable voice of Brendan O'Carroll. Let's see if you're right. Oh. You are right. Well done, you. Congratulations, Tony, in Rotherham, and a happy birthday to your wife. Is there anyone else you'd like to say hello to on the wireless while you're here? Yeah, we'll say happy, happy um, say hello to Natalie, our daughter, uh, Ben, our grandson, and Evie, our granddaughter. Ah, oh, lovely. Well, have a lovely walk and have a lovely evening at Pizza Express in Rotherham. Congratulations and thanks for playing, Tony. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Graham. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. Oh, made up for Tony and Rotherham there. That gift box will be winging its way to Rotherham. Oh, what fun we have. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the best of bits from the show early Monday morning. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Virgin Radio.